All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron again, or as some of you know me, Cam Sandwich. That's word on the street I've been called that. I'm not sure where that came from. Uh, but uh, anyway, we are in 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And uh, I want to just catch us up again, making sure that we continue to think about where we are uh, to make sure, because this is a letter, it was read as a whole, um, and so we've been going through it little by little, so there's things that we have to keep pulling along with us to make sure that we don't forget, because Peter refers actually backward quite a bit to chapter one, and he actually points forward to something he's going to talk about uh, in his second letter in chapter three, when he talks about the end of all things. And so, um, let me just remind us, and this is where you get to participate, uh, how is it that he refers to them? What's the, the key phrase that he uses that, that shows the relationships they have to God in the world? Elect exiles. Now, the reason that elect is so important is that it means that God has bestowed his love upon them before they've done anything to warrant or to earn it uh, or in any way, shape, or form to, to get it for themselves, which means on the other side that there's nothing that they can do to lose it. And that's really important if you think about life in a fallen world, Right? Uh, and I'm going to use the term loss not in the ultimate sense, uh, not in the teleological sense, not in the eternal sense, but have any of you ever experienced being lost as a believer? The truth of the matter is we all get lost sometimes. We all lose the narrative. We all forget that God loves us for any variety of reasons, whether it's a prolonged bout of suffering that seems meaningless and that we can't explain. It could be a brief window of intense suffering. It could just be a meaninglessness or malaise that comes in like a storm and refuses to leave. So it's important that we constantly come back to who and whose we are Right, and that 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 the meaning of elect is something very, very important to us, and to not lose that identity. I know there's a lot of struggle with that word, and we oftentimes try to press it to mean something more than it does. It's a word of comfort to God's people. It's not intended to say, "Here's who's in, and here's who's out," because the problem is we're all out, and we struggle to know whether or not we are in. And so, God, in His great graciousness, gives a word of great gravity that term, elect, which is our relationship to him. And then he also reminds us that we are also exiles. This world ultimately is not our home, which, by the way, is good news, if you watch the news at all. We were talking about this with somebody the other day. I said, if you think of all of the world leaders, how many of them would you say are sane? They couldn't name one. Uh, and so maybe the guy in Luxembourg, but I don't even know who he is. Uh, but but so, so much of our world is in tumult, right? You, you think about the, the, the fear that gripped the Carolinas coast as what they said was a monster storm was going to lash against it. And fortunately, it wasn't as bad as they thought, but so far, 11 people have still lost their lives, and there's a lot left to deal with. You think about just all of the stuff that goes on in our world, the, the threat of so many things. It can feel like there is nothing but chaos and we are not in control, which, by the way, we are not in control. But we know the one who is because we are elect, and we know that this isn't our final situation because we're exiles, which means that our relationship to the world must be, first and foremost, out of our electness. 
And you remember Peter has shown us that elect doesn't mean you're better than. Not at all. In fact, it means that you, like Jesus, are a servant in this world. And your service for the life of the world is to tell them that they are loved of God because they bear his image. And it is for us to serve and to care for the things that go on in this world, the suffering that goes on in this world, as an act of, of or an outworking, an ethic that comes from our worship, right? To be elect exiles means that we are other than the things of this world while also seeking to transform the things of this world, Right? And so we have stuff to do. We have a calling that we've been given. For those of you who uh, maybe have thought of Christianity as nothing more than fire insurance, that is not at all what it is. In fact, to think of it that way is to render all of the marrow from the bone. It makes it weak and brittle. That kind of faith won't last. And so we've been invited into this great story as elect exiles, and we have as our purpose the calling to pursue the lost. Not because we pursue them so we can tell them, you are lost and therefore going to perish as if we render judgment. But instead, as Christ over sinners wept, we too should with tears in our eyes call people into the life in which grants meaning that is eternal. And to make sure that people know that by virtue of the image that they bear, there is, at, at some, some level, there, there is something that God has determined worth saving. Not because of anything they do, not because of anything inherent in them, but because of the imprint he has placed on them. And so, that means that we will suffer. Because, I don't know about you, uh, if you've had this experience or you are this way, how many of you, just real quick poll, show of hands, like, just, I mean, you really just can't wait for somebody to tell you you're wrong about something? How many of you are like, man, that's, I love it. In fact, I'm so wrong about stuff, like sometimes I'm just wrong on purpose so somebody can tell me I'm wrong because I just love it. Well, you're a masochist is what you are. Uh, nobody likes being told they're wrong. Trust me, um, I have plenty of blood in this ditch. In fact, how many of you like being told what to do? Not suggested, not led to through the art of, of fanciful inquiry, but told what to do? None of you. You may say, I like knowing what the rules are, but you don't want anybody to tell you what they are. And you don't want anybody to hold you accountable to them. Right? So this thing that we're called to guarantees that we will suffer if we live it out. We will. Because you're going to run up against the most hardened and difficult, diamond-hard aspects of everyone's heart, your own included. And so this, I hate this quote, by the way, I'm about to read to you. I hated it when I read it. I hate it now, and I'm going to hate it for a long time. Uh, but it, it's right. Uh, and sometimes the truth is better than what we feel about it. But Peter David says it this way. He says, all the careful and considerate living possible will not prevent persecution. Let me, let me read that again, and you really need to hear it. Because I think this is where a lot of us are hung up. I've been here. In fact, I'm here a lot. 
I try to be careful and considerate in my living, hoping that it'll minimize all of the sparks that fly, right? That if, I, if I'm just nice enough when I speak to someone that they won't be angered by the content, right? If I just, if I just am, like I said, am, am, am nice enough in the inquiry, if I do it with leading questions instead of direct statements as if they like it any better because they see it coming. People aren't dumb, by the way. But hear it again. All the careful and considerate living possible will not, will not prevent persecution. So, the question I have for us this morning is, have you ever experienced suffering as a blessing? Because if you have, then you're in good company. Because your Savior knows that well. Now, I'm not talking about, I've experienced suffering. Uh, one time, Susan made me watch this documentary called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. I took it personal, right? She did the like gentle inquiry, but I saw what she was saying, right? I don't know which one of those was applicable to me or how close I was to that last one, the nearly dead one, but I knew she was saying something. She was trying to care for me. But so we watched this thing, and this guy from Australia, if you haven't seen, spoiler alert, he goes on this juice fast and is radically transformed, loses a bunch of weight, and is cured of every single solitary uh, autoimmune disease he had. Okay? Great story. So Susan sets off on this quixotic feast, uh, feat. It wasn't a feast, I can tell you that. And, and we started juicing, okay? And about two nights in, uh, I wake up in the middle of the night, and I, I reached over to tap her to take me to the emergency room because I was dying. The nearly dead part had come to bear. I thought I had meningitis, or there was a large anaconda wrapped around the base of my skull chewing on my brain. That's exactly what it felt like, okay? And so, and so that was suffering. And you may say, well, it was a, a blessing that came. Yeah, I lost a bunch of weight. People could tell the difference. Our food bill skyrocketed at $12,000 a week. Susan had to quit her job just so she could juice. I don't, it's pounds and pounds and pounds, right? And we did. We felt great, but we were going broke, and uh, we couldn't, it just was, it wasn't sustainable. That's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about. There was a blessing that came from that. It felt good for a while. And I got to be honest, it was kind of cool to be at work and drinking these exotic juices and having people test it and almost throw up and show how strong I was, my iron will. Uh, but, but, but it wasn't what Jesus went through. That's not what we're talking about here. The, the, the blessing that, that comes from suffering for something good, really good, eternally good. Have you ever felt that? And what made it a blessing? What was it about that suffering in Christ's name made it a blessing? Well, the answer is the finished person and work of Christ because of the hope that was set before you. That what you were enduring would have meaning of eternal consequence. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, build upon the foundation all of these precious stones, not hay, wooden stubble. Hay, wooden stubble is going to be burned up by the fire. But what you place on the foundation that's of eternal value, it will last. I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know that what it means is that what we do in this life translates into eternity. And there will be 
a way in which it beautifies the new heavens and the new earth. Because it's all of the elements that are going to be actually in the, the temple as it descends. It's made up of all those same elements, which were present in creation, by the way. And so we have to be careful that we rightly understand the kind of suffering we're talking about here this morning. So as we step into this text, um, I want us to keep in mind the indicatives and the imperatives. And remember, the indicative is what? God loves us. That is the firm foundation on which every ounce of obedience must come. You can't be obedient apart from God's love in a manner that has any eternal value. If you're seeking to be obedient to earn God's love instead of out of God's love, that will burn up. That's hay, wood, and stubble. And so I want you to hear right out of the gate how Peter grabs a hold of that indicative and he applies it to them in their identity. I'm going to read First uh, Peter 4, 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is when his glory is revealed if you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer or as a meddler yet if anyone suffers as a christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. Notice Peter has some hard things to say to us, and we're not going to resolve this in one sermon in terms of this is something you're going to have to chew on and you're going to have to think about and you're going to have to apply to your life over time, and it's something you will grow in. But something you should actually desire to grow in as much as, like I said, I hate that initial quote that there's not a way we can live to minimize persecution ultimately. So he starts by calling them beloved. Now, one of the things I think that we often struggle with is sometimes I think we keep too much of the identity of the old man in our head. And we don't recognize what it is that we have become. Now, there's a grand tension here, right? We are not yet what we will be. And our life is hidden with Christ on high. And yes, we still live in a fallen world. And yes, we are still mix of saint-sinner. But the loudest declaration is saint-beloved-elect. And if we don't start there, then any discussion of suffering is meaningless. You cannot appreciate or get to where the Bible calls you to go in terms of suffering if you can't hear the word beloved from your Lord and Savior who is interceding for you right now. If you can't hear beloved in the tongue of the Holy Spirit that rests upon you. If you can't hear beloved from your Abba Father who says come boldly to the throne of grace to receive what you need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. If you can't hear beloved, then nothing else I say, nothing else that has been said by Peter here will mean anything to you. 
So we first have to recognize, are we in fact beloved? Peter's actually going to challenge us on this in the beginning of 2 Peter. He's going to call for us to really go back again and reconsider our salvation and if it is what we think it is. Paul says it this way, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The text from Matthew 7 where Jesus says to those who say, we've done all this stuff in your name, and he says, depart from me for I never knew you should shake us to our core. But not so much so that we don't know who we are because all of those things have to do with whether or not we're trying to do it in our own strength. You are beloved, not because of anything you do. You are beloved because God has chosen in his infinite wisdom and mercy and grace and love to bestow his name upon you. And he has called for us to call for the family to get bigger. To be beloved is to want a bigger family. To be beloved is to want to please our Savior. To be beloved is to know who we are and whose we are before we ever take the first step toward obedience. So he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. This is, this is very important because he's taking you back, taking us back to the beginning of the letter where he says that your faith will be tested. A fiery trial, this issue of fire, every time it shows up in Peter, you need to think purification, not destruction. That is, would not be the right use of fire in Peter's letters. He is referring to purification. Now, what happens to precious metal when you heat it up immensely? What happens to it? Do we have any metallurgists in here? It, it, the dross comes to the top, you can get it off, and it purifies that metal. In fact, it's the only way you can purify a precious metal is to put it under intense heat and trial. In the same way, the way in which you are sanctified, made more into the image of Christ, is to be tried. In fact, it should make us a bit nervous if life is just coasting along way too easy and you haven't been tried recently in some way, shape, or form, especially in a fallen world, especially if we are beloved, especially if we recognize what it is we've been called to be and do. And so what he's saying here is that this is from the hand of your sovereign Lord. The trials that you are enduring, they're intended to make you stronger, not destroy you. They are intended to purify you, not break you into something of no use. And he says, this is not a strange thing. This is to be expected, right? Again, how many of us long for and expect trial. Now, we have to be careful because not every bad decision we make is a trial. That sometimes is just sin. A trial is something from the hand of the Lord that will actually further expose Christ in and through us, right? So what he's talking about here is if, is if you go out and be obedient, then you must expect that trial will befall you. And know that it has meaning and that it is for a good purpose. And he goes on. He says, but rejoice. Now, really? 
<laughs> Peter, as if what you were saying weren't already hard enough that trials will befall us, you want me to say it's good? You want me to rejoice? I can't do it through clenched teeth? Yes, we are to rejoice because we know that it is, again, for a greater purpose. That the trial that we endure is to get somewhere. For those of you who are parents, this section ought be gold to you. Because there is much suffering in parenting. There's many mistakes that are made. But there is much suffering in the longing for how to love our children well. The longing to be able to at protect them from themselves on one side and yet turn them over to the freedom that the Lord has given to them as his image bearers on the other. It's a very frightening thing. I remember when Kimberly, uh, the, one of the first days that she went to, to, to school when we were in Macon, and it dawned on me how little, con how as she was, the, the more she walked away, how less and less control I had. I was losing control. And I realized that that is just true. We are not in control. Even though many of you think if you make the world small enough, if you make the box small enough, if you don't expose them to all of these things that you've protected them, forgetting that the fall comes from within. It's from Adam. It's in our DNA. You cannot keep all of it out. And the harder you try, the more it destroys and corrodes and breaks. I don't know if any of you have ever read the novel, The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. But it's the great anti-Victorian novel that written at the end of uh, the 19th century. And one of the, the key premises in there is there's a clergyman who has children. Turns out he hates children. Uh, um, but he has them anyway because you're supposed to. And he determines that he is going to fashion them into his image. And by the title alone, it ought to tell you the way of all flesh. This novel doesn't end well. He does not accomplish what he sets out to do. In fact, the novel is a great critique of the Victorian sensibilities, that piety that rose uh, so viciously and in parts throughout England. Uh, and, and so it was, and I don't think it's all correct or fair, by the way, but, but this is, it was a harrowing depiction of his brutality. There's a scene in which his uh, oldest son, Ernest, can't say the word uh, come, like come to me. He, he keeps saying tum, tum. But to his ear, he was saying what his father was asking him to say. And his father says to him, he says, for you to continue to mispronounce that word says that you are in open rebellion and that you are, um, that you don't care that I am trying to love you. He takes him into the other room and he beats him. The kid screams and he has a friend over who is actually the, the, um, the, the guy telling the story in the book. His last name's Overton. And he comes in and it says that his hand was red. Now, I'm not saying you don't spank your kid. Don't, don't hear that necessarily. But the whole point of it was is that it was just brutal. And the next day they went and got some eggs and there was this poor lady whose child stepped on one of the eggs and she didn't whip that child in front of them. And Ernest said, why didn't he get beat? And Overton said, because they have a higher moral compass. 
And he didn't visit much more um, with Theobald and his family after that, as it turned out, as you might would imagine. But the point is, is that, is that when, when we try to control everything, when we, we try to, to limit and, and decide what's going to happen in our own strength and power, and, and because we're actually just trying to minimize our suffering, that is not what we are called to. And you may say, well, all right, Mr. Bond, then you better have a parenting class where you have all the answers. I can give it to you now. I have no earthly idea. Because different kids are different. And those of you who chose to have more than one kid, God bless you. They're all different along the spectrum. You can't do the same thing with all of them. But, but what you must do, what you must do is recognize that they are God's before they are yours. And what you must do is raise them in the admonition of the Lord so that they would know someday that they are beloved. That's what you must do. And you have a whole creative range by which you can do that, given your gifts, their gifts, and all that other stuff. But so often, I use that as an example, we're constantly trying to minimize our suffering. We're trying to control in such a way that we don't grow and others around us don't grow. And so what Peter here is saying is that, is that it's, we need to be able to rejoice and share in Christ's sufferings. Now, we need to take a moment just to talk about what is Christocentric suffering? What is actually Christologic? What is actually suffering with Jesus? He actually tells us in some measure. It's, it's if you suffer because of sin, your own sin, your own decisions as a murderer, a thief, and notice that one that he threw in there, meddler. That one's a tough one. If you're suffering because of sin that you commit, that is not Christologic suffering. That is you by your own hand. But if you suffer grieving for those you love, grieving at the condition of the world, grieving at the limited frailty of your own body, which we refer to as the humiliation of Christ, grieving at the lostness of others, grieving at how people turn on and push against Christianity only to take up something far more foolish, like calling themselves a witch or reading books and tingling, but Christians can't read the Bible and feel anything grieved at the condition of the world, grieved at the condition of the church, that is Christologic in measure. Where it is biblical, where the longing is for Christ to be glorified and made much of, if that is where our suffering is, then we are in union with Christ. But if you're suffering because of your own bad decisions, if you're suffering because you have decided to take matters into your own hands, that's on you. And yet there's still good news. Even in doing that, what are you if you're beloved? Got to be one Christian in here. What are you? You're forgiven. Because we will suffer for our own sins. We will, by our own hand, bring about suffering for ourselves and for others from time to time. We just will. But to know that you are forgiven 
and can be part of the reconciliatory solution in the middle of that is absolutely critical. But the higher calling is to suffer with the heart of Christ, suffer because of the things Christ cared about. That means to care about this lost and broken and fallen world. It means that we are to care about redemption and that God would be glorified. And if we are insulted for that, which you will be, right? You will be. For those of you, let me, let me, teenagers, real quick, everybody who's a middle schooler or a teenager, especially if you're in either public or private school. All right, how many of you would say you desperately want to be known as the goody two-shoes at your school? I see no hands. What's interesting is how this has flipped culturally over time. The most devastating position currently in public and private school and actually in our society by the way, it's not just them, is to be seen as a goody-two-shoes. It's the last thing anybody wants. We want to be a little bit earthy, right? We want to be able to cuss when it's absolutely necessary. We want to be able to mix it up a little bit. We want to know the latest beef between Eminem and Machine Gun Kelly. Like, we want to be on the tip, right? Like, that matters. So we can, so, so you know, we can, that, that's helpful. That's just missional evangelism, right? I don't know how you get Jesus out of that, but okay. <laughs> wow me. And as one who is referred to as earthy often, I am numbered among you. But I also recognize that that is not what glorifies God at all. It just doesn't. And so it's important that we recognize that it's not about being a category. It's about being beloved. And that we don't let the world dictate our identity. It has been dictated in Christ by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his grace, by our faith. And so, so it is important that we, if we are going to suffer, suffer well. Suffer in a manner that is honoring and glorifying to the Lord our God, suffering for the things that Christ suffered for to evidence his heart and his image. So if any one of us is to suffer, let us do it as a Christian and let us not be ashamed of it. Let us suffer in a way that is actually glorifying to the Lord our God because that name has been placed on us. The Spirit dwells within us. Listen to what Karen Job says about this passage. She says that suffering, because one is a Christian, is, therefore, neither unexpected or shameful, because the nexus, or the point at which they cross, suffering and honor is embodied in Jesus Christ himself. Suffering is an opportunity to glorify God and a badge of honor for the living stones in the house of God. Joy rather than surprise, blessing rather than insult, glory to God rather than shame. The Christian is called to enduring commitment to Christ's gospel amid suffering caused by that very commitment. This is the upside down nature of the kingdom where insult is blessing? Are you kidding me? Where we rejoice at suffering? Are you kidding me? How many of you have ever suffered in a way that felt meaningless? 
No, I'm not kidding you. In fact, it is the greatest hope of all that what we endure in and through this life could have meaning that stretches and spans all of eternity. Amen? Let's turn back to the text, but before we do, let me ask you a question. What types of suffering have you endured in communion with Christ? That's worth us thinking about. If there's, there's nothing we could point to, if, we, if there's no suffering that we've ever endured in communion with Christ, which, by the way, you all have because we all feel the frailty of our own limited beingness, right? We feel in ourselves. In fact, Paul talks about us groaning to, to be delivered, in a sense, in Romans 8. Creation groans, the spirit groans. We groan to be delivered from this brokenness and death. And yet, between the now and the not yet, we get to participate in something that is utterly transformative and glorious. Amen. I was going to wait till the end to talk about this because it's going to be hard. Sam Larson, who served as the interim pastor here between Mike and me coming, who was my professor at RTS, uh, is dying with liver and pancreatic cancer. He does not have long left. Can I tell you that I'm angry? Can I tell you that I know all the theological answers and I don't like any of them? Can I also tell you that it drives me crazy that Sam is going to die so stinking well that God is going to get the glory? He's already sent out a letter that made me weep and consider punching one of my two computer screens. But I, I can't live without two computer screens. I don't know if you guys know about this. I just can't. And he has suffered so much. Louise with the vascular dementia, she is in a permanent facility. He longed to be able to outlive her to make sure that she was taken care of. And God, for whatever reason, seems to be at current saying no. As someone said, and I don't remember if it was Jonathan or somebody, somebody said that when it's going to be amazing when Sam gets to heaven, all the fruit's going to come running toward him. I'm having a hard time with it. And part of the reason I'm having a hard time is I don't think I'm worthy of it. And I really don't want to be worthy of it, to be honest with you. I don't want to go that way. So I think. I want to be able to live carefully and considerately so as to avoid any persecution or suffering. Why do you think I was juicing? Why do you think I developed a wonderful love of the taste of beets? Which is just the same thing as what earthworms eat, dirt. So what types of suffering do you endure in communion with Christ and what's the purpose? How is it glorifying him? Maybe you don't currently know. Maybe you can't currently see it. Do you have faith enough to trust and endure? Let's turn back to the text. 1 Peter 4, 17 through 19. 
Peter goes on to say, and this is, this is a critical text for us to understand. It's so tied to the Old Testament. Uh, he says, for it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If what you just heard is, ah, Peter's putting the screws to him saying those sinners are fixing to get what they deserve. You misheard every single word that he just spoke. And in fact, if you did mishear it, then you don't understand the, the sweep of the Old Testament. Why was it, in fact, that Israel was elect out of all nations? What does Exodus 19 tell us? To be a royal priesthood. And what are they to do with this priesthoodness? Minister to the nations. Fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, as it were. Make the family bigger. Now, that is their calling, that is the calling of the church as well. Let me ask you this, how'd they do in that calling? They didn't do hot at all. Where did judgment fall first? Did it fall in Babylon? Did it fall upon Assyria? Did it fall upon Egypt in full? Where did it fall first? It fell first upon Israel. As the two kingdoms are carried into exile, one kingdom doesn't exist anymore at all. And what you need to understand about that is that was a signal, gracious and severe in its mercy to the surrounding nations. Repent and live. He says it in Isaiah, a passage we all should remember where he talks about the beatific vision of Assyria, Egypt, and Israel one day worshiping together. That that. What happened to Israel, even though they failed to serve as the priesthood of all nations, that in fact the true Israel would take up and be and do. Who's the true Israel? Christ is. Christ is the royal priest who comes and fulfills where Adam and Israel and we all fail. And it's important that we recognize that judgment will come for those who've been instructed and set apart first. Don't forget Peter's language. What does he call us in chapter 2? Somebody read it. Royal priesthood. What does he tell us to be that it's a quotation from Leviticus? Be ye holy for I am holy, set apart for a redemptive purpose. So what he's saying to them here, elect exiles, let me remind you where judgment falls first. Let me remind you of the gravity of the situation for everybody else. If we fail at this task, they will perish. Now, suffer while doing good. What's good? Calling the lost home. Reminding the world of God's deep and intense eternal love being ambassadors of reconciliation, participating in the unfolding glory that began at creation, that was ignited 
at Pentecost, after Christ had risen and ascended. We, the church, are called to remember the cost. The cost to those around us. And you may say, well, Mr. Barham, I don't think you've read any Reformed theology recently, but uh, God is sovereign. (laughs) Yes, he is. He's sovereign in his judgment. He's sovereign in picking up where we fail, and he's sovereign in metering out the consequences to us first. See, we don't get out of this. It's not that we are going to be able to not endure the fire, as Paul says. He says, you'll be saved from the fire, but I don't know about you. It doesn't tell you how long you're going to be in it or how bad it's going to hurt. And it's not that I want to avoid the fire. I along with Sam, want to be able to die well. So remember, church, you were saved for a purpose. We gather together for a purpose. It's not to check off some box. Nothing we do here is good enough for you to check off some box. There's churches that do it way better if you want to go check off a box. But if you want to participate in something, but if, if, you, if you want to be ambassadors of reconciliation, if you want to grow in your discipleship, that's what we're here to be and do. We want to see fruit born from our efforts. We're not interested in being protected We are interested in suffering for Christ's sake. We are interested in doing good for the life of the world. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says about this. He says, while this may at first seem harsh, for it implies that at times it is God's will that we suffer, upon reflection, no better comfort in suffering can be found than this. It is God's good and perfect will. For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and in its duration. A limit set and maintained by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our father. And therein also lies the knowledge that this suffering is only for our good. It is purifying us, drawing us closer to our Lord and making us more like him in our lives. In all of it, we are not alone, but we can depend on the care of a faithful creator. So we have to ask, what is the purpose of judgment? We saw it in the flood. Remember the purpose of the the flood and in, in redeeming Noah was to recreate the world. There was actually redemption in that judgment. What's the, the purpose of judgment that fell upon Christ? that we would be fashioned into his image. Judgment is never zero-sum in that it has no effect positively. And remember, Ezekiel 18, what does God take no pleasure in? The death of the wicked, and nor should you. Now, we will celebrate when all that is unrighteous and broken and sinful is finally at last taken away, which will include those who deny God. 
What we will celebrate is that the world will be made new and we at long last can worship in spirit and in truth. And every tear will be wiped away. But we don't celebrate their destruction. So how should this affect our view of the world and the lost? It should tender us. It should break us as it broke Christ on its behalf. It should change how we interact with our neighbors. It should change how we interact with our coworkers, our family members. It should change how we how we hear the news, it should change how we post online, it should change how we read, write, watch, hear. Everything. I love that Francis Schaeffer was so good at that. I read all of his works over this past year and there's a lot to critique, by the way. He was human. He had a son that kind of went way left of field, as it turned out. But what he longed to do was integrate all things under the lordship of Christ, who came in time and history. We would do well to do the same. So what do we learn from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19? Well, it teaches us that we are called for the sake of God's glory as the beloved and the redemption of the lost to rejoice in Christ's suffering. Now, that's not something you can just do noetically. I can't give you three steps to do that. That's something we do together. That's something that we do biblically. That's something that we wrestle with. We also entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good for the life of the world. Now, what a gift on a day with a sermon of that kind of ethos and magnitude and talking about suffering that we have the opportunity to come to the table to be nourished in our faith, to be equipped for this calling, right? That we are not left without the resources necessary to do this because you, I know you're sitting there thinking, this this sermon's terrible for lots of reasons, but particularly because of what it's calling us to do. I get it. I don't like it either. But I also know that it's where the fountain is. I also know that it's where life more abundant is. So as you uh, participate in the table this morning, there's a couple things you need to consider. If you're not a believer, if you don't believe in Christ as your Savior and that you're a sinner in need of Christ's salvation, just let the elements pass by. It's okay. Nobody's going to call you out. You don't have to stand at the end of the service and be named. But don't, don't eat of something that doesn't have meaning to you. The other folks who ought not take of this table, if you're visiting with us this morning, and I, I don't know of anybody in this camp, but if you've been put under church discipline by your church, until that's worked out, you need to let the elements pass you by. And then, and then if you think there's anybody that exists in this world who bears the image of God, which is every riven person, as it turns out, by the way, according to the Old Testament uh, uh, commandment that we can't murder folks, If you think there's anybody who bears the image of God who is unworthy of forgiveness, based on your limited knowledge, you can't take of this table either. That doesn't mean you have to have it all worked out. But what it does mean is you've got to keep an open hand. And there's some rough people in this world. That's tough. Right? 
But that's the upside down nature of forgiveness. So if the elders would go ahead and come forward, I want to remind us of what Christ said as he had this last meal with his disciples, the, the, the men that he had loved so dearly and that he was equipping to go on and do more than he could do. Remember that. This meal was part of equipping them to go on to do more than he could do, which he said, by the way, we would do. Some days don't look like it, but it is what we are called to. And he reached across and grabbed a common element, bread, something that they would have to interact with a lot in their days. And he wanted them to be able to have something that they could remember him often. And he took that bread and he raised it up. He said, this, this is my body and it is broken for you. And in that statement that they didn't quite understand at the time and that I think we still struggle to understand most days, what he was saying to them is your sin doesn't have the final say. What he was saying to them is your shame and your guilt is not what identifies you unless you let it. Unless you keep it stirred up. Unless you bring it back from the east and the west where I have cast it in breaking my body. What he was saying to them is there is no more declaration of your unworthiness. In my broken body, you are, will become beloved. So as you receive the bread this morning, I want you to take time to give thanks for the declaration over you that you are beloved. And I want you to think about what that means to you and how that changes your identity, how that changes the whole way you could see the world in that one phrase, beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the broken body of Christ. Thank you for the declaration that we are beloved. Thank you that it is through this that shame and guilt identifies us no more. That we are no longer seen as worthless. That we are seen as sons and daughters of the Most High God, given access to all of the spiritual blessings. Help us remember who and whose we are as we eat this bread this morning. In Christ's name, amen.